From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo, here talking, specifically podcasting, which I guess is different from just talking, about how we're all dealing with the corona crisis. My guest today is the brilliant and charming historian Annie Polland, who's been looking into how this current pandemic compares with the one 100 years ago, the 1918 Spanish flu, and in particular, its impact on immigrants. It's a topic that's been on my mind because it's in the news, but also because of where I lived until just a few years ago. If New York City is the epicenter in the U.S., then the EPA epicenter is out in northern Queens, the areas around Elmhurst Hospital, including my old neighborhood, Jackson Heights. It's a part of the city that's just about the most diverse there is. Nearly two-thirds of the people there were born outside the U.S. They're mostly working and middle class. The backbone of the city and the COVID-19 numbers there have been among the worst. Uh, That's often how it is with pandemics. They affect everyone, but immigrants can get hit harder. Has that always been the case? Well, I wanted to ask an actual historian. Annie Pollan has, since 2018, been the executive director of the American Jewish Historical Society. Before that, she was vice president of education at the amazing Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side. She writes books, she does research, she gives talks, and she runs an institution. She is a full-service historian, and I am glad to have her with us. Annie, welcome to In Quarantine. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for that very generous introduction. I will try to be somewhat as brilliant and as charming as um, as the introduction leads. Okay, good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I hope that you don't let people down. Ugh. <laughs> This will come across. What happens now if, like, in the midst of the COVID nineteen crisis, the most disappointing thing people experience? <laughs> <is>. <laughs> um, My so, lackluster interview. Uh, you are in Brooklyn. I am. I am in uh, Ditmas Park. Uh, talking to you from your home. Uh, so, when? How long you been inside? Uh, when? When did you? March twelfth. March twelfth. I went a to work. Ahead March twelfth. Exactly, and. Um, we went to work that day and then realized we'd be closing the next day. And I, I just remember I was in my office and I'm like, okay, um, you know, I'll actually be able to come back next week because the subways will be quiet and I'll be able to come back and look at the archives and get things. So I just, I threw a couple books in a tote bag and um, I grabbed a halva bar because I enjoy the halva <laughs> bar because <laughs> we are... Um, going to be processing their papers. You're getting the halva papers. We're getting the halva papers. It's a halva. Wow. <laughs> the, the competition. Yeah. I assume the competition was fierce. Yes. I mean, it's an amazing story of this four-generation Brooklyn family started out on the Lower East Side um, and then has been making halva. Um, but there's great stuff there. Like in the 50s, they went to an ad advertisement agency and they started a Miss Joyva competition. So there was actually like women in swimming suits all over New York, Queens, Bronx, the Bronx and Brooklyn, Manhattan competing to be Miss Joyva. Oh so- boy. There are times when I feel I was born in the wrong year. Uh- <laughs> yes. Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so you're there uh, with your family. Um, Yes, I'm here, yes, with my husband, Mike, and my daughter, Lily. We're in a, um, you know, an apartment 
Uh, and now the bedroom, our bedroom has become conference center number one. And that's where <laughs> Lily, our daughter, is a sophomore at LaGuardia. So she goes to her bedroom to maybe do work. I'm not quite sure what's happening. Oh, so at, at the performing arts school. Correct. Correct. Right. That's a particularly difficult school to be doing remotely, I would think. Yeah, well, she does art, so she does visual art, so oh, okay. they're able to. But I think it's just everyone is still figuring out how to adapt to this situation. And yeah. um, and uh, and how about professionally? So you're an historian. You also run an institution. How has Corona affected both the work you do, you know, as a researcher and historian, and your institution generally? So we are a pretty small staff, um, but people are able we kind of worked very hard at the beginning to change like work plans so that people had work to do at home. And, you know, I, there's a lot of fear of for nonprofits about even when we do get back, what's the fundraising terrain going to look like? So it's definitely stressful, you know, but the other side of the coin is that people have been so creative. So for example, we have a big initiative around Emma Lazarus, who wrote the poem for the Statue of Liberty, Give Me Your Tired and Your right. Poor, and we have her papers. And so in the last year, we opened up a new exhibit, which is a recreation of her sitting room. And people get to, it's kind of like the Tenement Museum, except it's like an apartment for a fairly well-to-do person where people get to go in, sit down in the furniture. But of course, and we planned so many programs, we planned poetry workshops, all of these things around it that that couldn't happen. So that was disappointing. But then the staff is so creative and we have been able to create, you know, online programs. And the most exciting thing is that we're doing an online virtual Meet Emma Lazarus program hmm. where one of our staff members who also happens to be an actor is playing Emma Lazarus and we were able to do a green screen backdrop. And so she tomorrow will be meeting with 50 families from, I think, Chicago and New York and Boston who are chiming in to kind of interview her about what it's like to be Emma Lazarus. Um, How is looking at this pandemic maybe different from an historian's perspective than just a, you know, sort of follower of the day-to-day news like I am? Do you see certain resonances? Let me also say that I am not an expert at all in in any of this that we're talking about. So there are probably other, you know, there are definitely experts on public health and all of this that know much more than I do. But what I would say- I'm not going to talk to them, Annie. I'm not going to do that. You're it. I am it. Well, I tried to think what are historical precedents for this, you know, if not specifically the coronavirus or COVID-19, what are moments where New Yorkers had to grapple with uncertainty and fear. Um, And there are many of those moments throughout the 19th century. There were outbreaks of yellow fever and cholera. And then also, in addition to health scares, there were economic depressions that were quite common. So kind of looking at how people responded then, and there's some pretty inspiring stories in the archives that speak to that. You got any tips for surviving a depression (laughs) slash pandemic? Yeah, there's a couple things. But one from 1918, Lillian Wald, who uh, was a nurse, and she started the Henry Street Settlement House on the Lower East Side. Oh, sure. And 1918, that's the Spanish influenza. That's the I think that's the pandemic that people are most comparing to this one. Yeah. 
then in 1918, she was basically tapped by the city to head an emergency commission um, to organize all the nurses and medical workers in the city. So what we have in our archive is a flyer that she had put out to recruit nurses. Um, she said that the, the flu, the, the Spanish flu is not caused for panic, but it's caused for courage, coolness, and sacrifice. Um, and so she's like, you know, don't panic, do your job. Women, even if you're assistant nurses or whatever it is you are, come and help us, you know, fight this. And, and that's the most important thing. So I think we all need to kind of think about how that coolness, courage, and sacrifice can, can apply to us. It's also interesting to me is that, uh, yeah, I also noticed that the call to women specifically, I think we're hearing that so many of the frontline workers and the essential workers uh, in this crisis are women. Um, it's, 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 it's women and it's especially in New York, it's immigrants yes. um, who are having to do a lot of the hardest jobs having to do or, or willing to do. How did the 1918 uh, epidemic you know, how did it affect immigrants compared to you know people who'd been in the country for a while? Uh, the Jewish population, in particular, which I, I know is your specialty. And about a quarter of the Jewish population by World War One and and by 1919 lived on the Lower East Side and in in crowded neighborhoods, which is not a great great recipe for um, keeping illness at bay. Um, so yes, the Jewish population, Italian population are affected, but the influenza also affected the native born um, and was affecting soldiers. I mean, actually the first casualties of the influenza were American soldiers who were abroad. Um, so who brought, it one, over, brought it over from Europe. Right, right. Yeah. And the one yeah. kind of like, what that did is it made it harder to pin this um, disease on immigrants. A lot of immigrant leaders, Jewish immigrant leaders, were worried that uh, in a time of disease, Jews would be blamed because that had been the situation in, in Europe for so long. Um, so they were kind of on top of that. And they were, you know, in the Yiddish newspapers, spreading information about how to keep this at bay, what are the, the health precautions they can take. But, you know, in a weird way, the fact that New York had experience dealing with tenement districts and disease helps it in 1918. There was more of a structure set up, a public health structure in a way, to get the messages out. And wow. so this, yeah, so the same things that they were doing to fight tuberculosis, you know, putting up posters and placards and all sorts of things could then be brought into play um, at the time of the influ influenza epidemic. Because disease epidemics were so much more common, people knew more or less what to do. And were they shutting down restaurants back then? Were they shutting down theaters? Uh, the subway was still running? Not as much. They put new things in place. Like I think they said no smoking in theaters, which was huge because everyone smoked back then. And then spitting. Spitting was a big deal. And so there were a lot of posters and signs and education about not spitting. And then Yiddish, you know, <laughs> Jews were putting these posters up in Yiddish as well. Do you speak Yiddish? I don't speak. I can read it. I can read it. You can but, read it. Um, okay. I was going to ask you if you might be able to say, hey, stop spitting. You know, oh, no. I, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I can read. And I guess with the spitting, probably then there were also, as there are now, there were probably protesters out demanding their right to spit. 
Yes. Now tell me, this is a this is a reboot podcast. Tell me, what would you say is the Jewiest thing you've done since the quarantine went into effect? Could be anything. Oh, huh. I mean, it's so funny because I feel like my Jewy identity is like studying what other Jews do <laughs> and and what Jews have done in the past. That works. And a little, and a little bit less than than uh, with regard to me. But we're you know we are we light our light candles Friday night. I think the Passover. It's a good way of keeping track of what the hell day it is. What day it is, right? <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. But. Uh, I think, you know, Passover was, of course, I'm thinking about, and I'm not just saying this because it's rebooters out there, but I found, I found that Saturday night Seder that I know rebooters were involved with so moving. It was tremendous. Tremendous. And so sincere and beautiful. And, you know, it's funny, my, my daughter, it was so interesting for her to see, you know, what singers were saying, what, what non-Jews were saying about right. Passover. And I just, I thought there was something so beautiful and such a wonderful spirit of connection that I think that is going to be something, but as someone who runs an archive, like I want to get, so readers who are involved in that, I want to interview you. So people 50 years from now, or even 10 years from now can say, what were Jews doing on Passover during the Corona crisis? Like I want that Saturday night Seder to be really remembered. I think it will be. Did you do uh, Zoom seders? Did you do any of that stuff with your family? Yes, we did a Zoom seder the first night with um, my brother and um, his family live in D.C., so they were on it. And my parents were on it, my sister in Brooklyn. It was good. I have to say it was, you know, it was kind of, I don't know if we, we certainly didn't do every part of the Haggadah, but. (laughs) Ours was such chaos. We had like 15 people in nine different cities, and most of it was, was like a tech support session. What do I, how do I mute? How do I mute? Just put it permanently on mute, please. Now, how did your girls uh, like it? Did they participate? What was they, their role? Yeah, no, they did. It wasn't their favorite thing. They liked the Saturday one. They didn't care for the Zoom uh, Seder very much. I That's think the, novel, the novelty of it was gone in five minutes. And then, yeah, it just it seemed to me like if this was what the tradition actually was, it would have died out you know, 4,800 years ago. Like it was not meant to be this way. And I think we're all, hopefully by next spring, we'll be all together and that will be a, that will just, that will feel so good. Yeah, yeah. Never mind Jerusalem, just all in one place, yes. any place. Exactly. With humans. We'll fine. Um, Annie, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Look, I have lots of time. <laughs> Uh, for more on the American Jewish Historical Society, including the Emma Lazarus exhibition, the link's on our show page. Until then, this is Steve Bodo saying six feet, uh, maybe make it 10. <laughs>